I hate appraisal systems, so we need to clear that up. You know, there's only kind of three rules in any business I run. And first of all, there's no appraisal system. The second thing, there's no HR director, and that is for sure. And then the third thing, there's no mission statement. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So in this podcast, I'm talking to some of the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs to discover what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us all in our lives too. In this episode, it's Adrian Thompson, CEO of HVAC global market leader, Aspen Pumps. I've had the pleasure of knowing Adrian for many years, thanks to Christian, my Tenzing co-founder, who first introduced him to the world of private equity in 2007 and subsequently persuaded him to be on our entrepreneurs panel. Since joining, he's brought immense value to our portfolio of businesses and you can read more about the work he and other panelists do on our website. Adrian's story is a game of two halves, a crazy roller coaster in his 20s, careering up the ladder at a chaotic company where youthful fearlessness and enthusiasm for all that was thrown at him meant he learnt more on the ground than he ever would have done on an MBA. And then Aspen Pumps, which he joined as a CEO, taking over from the founder. When he first joined, it was just north of a 10 million turnover business with 40 people in a shed. Now there are 250 people and a turnover in excess of 120 million, exporting to over 100 countries. It's been through multiple PE sales and continues to thrive. Adrian will be the first to admit that the worlds of toilet panel connectors, roofing felt and air conditioning pumps might not make for, on the surface at least, the sexiest career in the world, but appearances can be deceptive. And his time in business has given him a profound understanding of managing teams through turnaround, cultural change, rapid growth and beyond. Enjoy. Right, I'll just kick off. So I'm going to ask you, Adrian, if you could tell me about your earliest entrepreneurial experience. Well, we're going back a long way. So my first entrepreneurial experience was actually as a Cub Scout in something that was called Bobber Job. Now, I'm sure you remember <laughs> this guy. I'm sure he's as old as I am. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, where you would go and raise money by going around and doing charitable work for people and hoping to get paid. And as part of that, actually, I raised the most money ever that had been done by a Cub Scout in the Birch and Joyce Cub Scout group. Oh, wow. So that was the first taste of earning money. And then I had to give it all away. Would well, you remember what you did? What was your jobs that you were bobbing? Unfortunately, most of it was a level of gardening and cleaning cars. A lot of cars were cleaned during that week. Do you remember the first time you started thinking about business or business models or making money? Well, I started, uh, you know, really late on my career towards actually going into business itself or doing it properly because I was a failed metallurgist. So at the university, I studied metallurgy and materials, which was a really bizarre degree, but you got to go to a great university. So you could drink your air, play rugby and not worry about your qualification. And then I joined an organisation that was pretty awful. So I was sitting there working on the sales office wondering what was business all about. And this was all happening around me. So the business had, all the orders weren't working. They had no stock. Yeah. And you're thinking there must be some theory about how this should all be stuck together. And that's when I actually started a night school and I did the Institute of Marketing Diploma. And that was really the first time I actually came across anything like a business model. Oh, wow. I mean, the, the organisation was falling apart, but it just taught me so much about business. It's the greatest MBA you can actually have. And I was sitting in a sales office. I was really joined as a sales guy, but they had no job for me. Mm. So they shoved me into the sales office. So I spent a year, year and a half talking to customers and their complaints. And it taught me so much about business. And then doing the night school started to put the structure in place about how business was all written down in a book somewhere and how it was structured. 
And because I worked for such a bad organisation, you then got rapid promotion. Because as they always say, my career is built upon, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So this was like literally what your first job out of uni, was it? Yeah, straight there, selling block paving or, or talking to customers about block paving. I've always lived the dream. <laughs> so from those early days, I was rapidly promoted into running sales officers. Yeah. And then I ended up moving into marketing management as I still do my qualification at night. And then I went into damp-proof courses and roofing felts. This is a real career, an exciting one. And you'd had a career in toilets at some stage. I've learned on the hard way, mate. You know, you're entrepreneurs, you can forget that. I've done the hard knocks. <laughs> so from roofing felt, I moved into sales management and was made sales manager quite quickly and national account manager. I went to the job and realised we didn't have any. So that was quite a shock. <laughs> well, no, it had no accounts. Yeah, yeah. No accounts really to go to. We had a guy doing the job, but I don't know what he was doing all day. So I had a sales team to feed as well. So I spent two years literally on the road getting customers, developing the business and putting into place what I'd learned in marketing management when I'd putting the product ranges together. And then it's one of those lucky breaks you get in life. They were looking for a talent within the organisation to run a business that was the world's largest manufacturer of toilet pan connectors. And I was lucky enough to get that job. So at the age of 27... Toilet pan connectors. Connectors, they're a crucial part of your life, guy, you see. Is that basically a plastic hinge? <laughs> yeah. Well, every toilet has an outlet and they're over at the side or the bottom. I mean, this is how technical it gets. Yeah. And we used to make millions of those that actually connect it to the saw pipe. So they're just an intermediary between the ceramic okay. and the actual saw pipe itself. And you plug it into it and then you push it into the other. Okay, so it's concrete paving stones to toilet connectors. Yeah. And this is in the same group? Yeah, it's a big conglomerate. Originally family owned in the 1970s. I don't think it's fair to name them. Yeah. And as part of that, really, the business had gone through the third generation. And ultimately, that was then sold when a private equity approach came, so it came to a bigger international. So I then joined a French conglomerate. So that was during the time of the toilet pan years. And that was a great experience, really, because for two years, I was running my own business, which had a manufacturing unit. And toilet pans are universal all around the world. So you got the opportunity to do international sales, mm -hmm. distribution, to have the full tool set. Mm -hmm. So from that, I then was promoted into toilet fans. Wow. And then I spent the next part of my career running a business that was really in trouble. And that was a turnaround job that took about two years. And that was moving the business really from where it was, which was in the middle of the road, waiting for a bus to run it over to a premium supplier within the sector. And ultimately, I spent six to seven years there and then finally got lucky and joined uh, private equity through uh, joining the Aspen Pumps business. So you would have been quite young when you were running your first division. Yeah, my first CEO job was at 27. Wow. So you must have had something about you that the company saw to back. You know, most mid-20s people don't end up running divisions so soon in their career. So what's the sort of character trait, do you think? Well, if you met me in those days, you would have said arrogance, but I think I've beaten some of that out of me. Mm. I think at the end of the day, by having the structure that I put through doing the marketing course and the experience of talking to customers, I was in a position where I could really understand the business because I'd spent a long time in the industry mm. and was able to really work within the organisation and give it some energy and direction and really work with it. But within that as well, I had to change all the personnel. So you really had to face that some of the individuals there were part of the problem, unfortunately. So around giving energy and direction, really motivating people, it was around also getting the right people within the business and making those tough decisions. And did you have a burning desire to be something or someone or to lead people? Were you captain of rugby teams? No, not really. No, I never want to really overly push myself forward. I'd rather be part of things. I learned a lot of management through my university rugby career because I played for the fifths, which is where a lack of talent meets a lack of ambition. <laughs> and we had a fantastic captain called Jim Richardson who now has his own recruitment company. 
But through working together over that year, and it was a gathering of people who'd had enough of the rugby politics and didn't want to drink other things, shall I say, <laughs> say this podcast. But people who'd fallen out from the point of view they'd never played rugby like myself for years, and people who'd never played rugby at all. But by the end of that year, we actually beat the second team. Wow. And that shows you what it can do with management and focusing people together. And what a great sport rugby is, because you have to rely on everybody. Mm. So that really helped on that kind of style of management. The reason I really ended up as a CEO is I just had enough of people within my career making poor decisions and me not being in the room and I just wanted to be the person ultimately that was given the opportunity to make the decisions and actually make things better for people also because you have a track record of delivery within an organization and that gets noted yeah. and the ability to get things done and that really does move you forward so I think that was linked to the fact that having that ability but also being able to structure out a plan and a way forward for that business and motivate and bring the team together were essential and I think that did make me stand out as an enthusiastic, energetic individual. So quite a big personality at that time and someone who was brave enough to take on the challenge or maybe stupid enough. <laughs> and then moving towards private equity, was it a conscious decision to get into a private equity back business or was it just that that happened to be the owner of the company you wanted the job with? No, it was a very conscious decision. Having worked for corporate and making money for other people, you do one day wake up and think that you're the idiot. <laughs> and we got to the position where... I was, you know, pushing forward the business as far as I could go with it yeah. and looking around me. And the only thing I had in common with all the other CEOs of that group was that they had stayed. And that was a thing where there was a long pension scheme. There were share options that had tied the people in. But I had nothing else in common. And also I wanted, a, you know, a fair share of the rewards. So I was looking for either to buy a business or enter through private equity. And I did get very close to buying a business in the final few months they actually uh, sold the business to someone else. And then I was very lucky. The guy I tried to buy the business with yeah. had then taken on another job and he sent me the opportunity to have the interview for Aspen Pumps, which at that time was with inflection in the very early days. So what role was that at Aspen? It was an unusual deal because the Aspen business was a fantastic company with a great product but grown so quickly and needed infrastructure. And the entrepreneur founder of that business could see that. So he was a very sensible person. What he wanted was a CEO to come in with a chairman to actually bring the structure and recruit the team for the next stage of growth. But on top of that, he wanted to stay in the business. So he had to have someone he could work with as well. So it was quite an unusual role. And I think Inflection were very brave. And the guy who actually interviewed me was a guy called Christian Hamilton. Oh, I know him. My first experience of private equity was being introduced by Christian in his very early days. Yeah. And let's be honest, he looked about 12 then. He doesn't look any older now. <laughs> baby face, yeah. sort of poster boy of private equity at the time. Yeah, really was. So Inflection had already invested. The founder of the business had realised the business was probably growing, what, too big for his sort of skill set. And so you were being hired along with a sort of chairman to come and succeed him and, I guess, professionalise the group. It was even further back than that because Inflection could see that the founder also wouldn't be the guy that could do the deal and actually get the bank's backing. Right. So while running Aspen, I was working with Christian, putting the business plan together and then also doing the work with the banks. And we had a DD report. I'd met the guy for two hours in the offices and I was standing there selling the business to the banks and getting the money together and doing the business plan. Yeah. So I was involved from well, mid-2006 to 2007 we actually bought the business working with Christian putting it all together and heading up the deal and getting it over the line. Talk through Aspen Pumps what did it look like in 2006 and 7 you know the business model and how big it was? First of all they always talk about industries and sectors and the margins you can make and porters five forces and Aspen Pump was a profit based business so the entrepreneurs there had created a great product set but had no infrastructure to actually move that forward so the manufacturing was based on piecework where people were paid by what they produced. They didn't have any planning systems or computer systems that you recognize as such. 
and their accounts were done every six weeks and literally that was by one guy who was an ex-pianist from Hull who now was trained to be an IT consultant. He would put the invoices on an Excel spreadsheet every six weeks and send them out. So it literally was 10 people upstairs, two guys downstairs, non-communicating, and about 20 people in an office. And when we bought it on day one, out of the 10 people upstairs, three of them started crying and never stopped. Oh, wow. Because they were just so stressed by the whole situation. So it really had very little infrastructure. But brilliant products. This one guy put it together, so they're selling to over 30 companies worldwide with no salespeople. Wow. So an absolutely fantastic business that just needed professionalising and structure and some love. For those not FA with Aspen Pump, so it's a pump within an air conditioning unit. Air conditioning itself is an amazing market because it's a global market. So it's all made in China, Korea and Japan to one standard. So the products that we make and design in house and in Eastbourne, which is God's waiting room, <laughs> we're able then to ship around the world because it's one standard. It's a disruptive technology without many established players. So it really gave Aspen a great opportunity to become global very quickly. Now within that, where we fit is air conditioning units, the bulk of them produce condensate in the room as they condition the air. So they take the humidity out and that produces water. Now in the bulk of the cases, as you know, we go on holiday in Greece, that's actually just pumped out through a piece of pipe using gravity. And that's just on the floor that you see on the balcony. Now where you want to do a nice installation and move that water around and put it back into the system, that's when you'd use an Aspen pump where you want a professional installation. So they're just really sexy pumps that fit within that industry. And they're part of a tool of the trade of how you'd install an air conditioning unit. My understanding is that the HVAC engineer basically chooses one pump or the other and once they've gone for that pump it's a supplier for life effectively. You're completely right that was something that we learned in the toilet pan connector industry because initially before we joined Europe and now we're not part of that toilet pan size was a different on the outlet and as part of that becoming standard we had our original product was a multi-quick number one very original <laughs> uh, and the new product was called a multi-quick number two yeah. which is even more original for the toilet industry and we still found after launching the new product the old one could fit on it if you really were very strong and you forced it but the new product was slightly bigger but after 20 years half the sales were for the number one because it was the first product that people had been given on site and that's the product they use yeah it's a very sticky industry so the product works these are very professional installers they'll stick with that product so they're selling to 30 countries worldwide in 2006-7 turnover would have been what 10 million or so it was just north of 10 million so it was very hard with the accounts so let's say about 13 to 14 million to be fair to them yeah and then what does aspen look like now well aspen now for that transition and it shows how well the private equity model works we'll top over 120 million this year And as part of that, then we have operations within the US, Australia, Germany, France, India, a small distribution center in Holland as well. So it's gone from that kind of like 40 people in a shed and three of them crying to over 250 people with offices all around the world. And we've recently bought a business now in Italy during lockdown and a business in Malaysia. Wow. So it really is going from a UK exporter to a truly international business, which trades with over 100 countries worldwide now. So the big challenge on day one, despite all the operational kind of issues, looking outside in would seem to be the succession between you and the founders. And I imagine it can be quite daunting to walk into a founder's business and take over as a CEO. So... How did you find that and what were the sort of lessons that you learned along the way? That's a very good question because it was very, very hard to go into a business where you're trying to mark someone else's homework and they're still there. You're trying to show a lot of compassion towards their feelings while trying to structure it, which could lead to conflict as well. 
And the guy was a very good businessman. He was very passionate about what he did. Yeah. So it was trying to create an area where we could both work together so he could focus on the sales and the markets and the customers that he had the relationships and he was great at the innovation while I was working at actually just supporting and as you say, building the infrastructure around him to support his ideas, but also taking some of the load on the sales and bulking it out and bringing the systems in was also to look after the UK market and some of the export and spend time with the customers and get the momentum back into the sales. What was his ongoing involvement once you took over as CEO? He had two clear roles. One was the innovation and that was an area that he really loved and that sold out. And the other one then was still keeping his hand in with most of the international markets and the international sales. As we started then to recruit salesmen, then we slowly took those markets off him. But really from day one, he moved in to look after the product development side of the business and at 29 of those export markets. Well, I did the back end office, the professionalisation and look after the UK. So it was trying to break those roles, but also just work together as a team. And one of the key things within that is to try and, you know, bring the energy towards it, but also the trust that you can look after the business and that you could deliver growth. And that trust, I guess he would have felt quite threatened in the early months. Did that just build up over a period of time through doing what you said you would do? Yeah, you had to earn his respect. You know, he was a bright guy. He's very conscious of what he built. And also you were trying not to be critical of his work and what he'd done before. So it was a way of moving it forward while building his trust. But that took a lot of time. Yeah. And it was not an easy job. And then he eventually stepped away. And was that an obvious exit point for him, as it were? Yes. I mean, it's unusual to have an entrepreneur in that position where they don't lead the business as part of a PE deal. But as you say, PE really want to keep the founder, the DNA of that business going and make sure they know where the value drivers are. So it was essentially we could work together and the founder was adding that value. But after three to four years, he had other things he was looking at, other things he was enjoying. And he could really see that his role in the business had now declined. Mm -hmm. And there was other stuff that he wanted to do. So it was a natural parting of the ways. But it took three to four years to actually achieve that and make him feel comfortable about that transition out. Yeah. By that stage, the culture of the business was wholly different to when you first walked in. And how did you think about that and go about making changes to sort of culture and senior leaders? Well, initially from this, it was base level one of actually just getting the security of the business and the systems to be an ongoing machine. And as you know, private equity is all about initiative. All business is about getting the cash flow right and making sure that they're satisfying the customers. So in the early days, it was just very much hands to the pump to support the production, the infrastructure there and recruit a good supply chain leader. And then on the other side, it was about professionalising, bringing the salespeople in while bringing in accountants. So it was a very gradual process that we started with, actually, on the finance side. Mm. And we brought a finance director into the business and then later on a supply chain and then a sales guy for the international markets. So we had to recruit a total team over those first three to four years to get that infrastructure right. And what sort of people were you looking at? What was the balance between like skill set and character and personality how did you go about building that team i'd like to think it was more thought out <laughs> but it was a state of desperation and i always like when i look at businesses to look at competencies as building blocks so i was trying to recruit people who had the competency and you remember we're talking about eastbourne here yeah so we're not talking about a glamorous location yeah who could bring those skill sets to work but what i would normally say to that question is you try and look for obviously people who are bright and intelligent who can deliver but also have energy enthusiasm and can bring that culture with them yeah and that's what i normally look for but in those days it was desperate days and i'll be quite honest with you not many of those recruitments worked and we've been through many cycles of actually improving that and getting the right people and it wasn't a great hit rate at the beginning. If you look back on that, would you have done anything different or do you think it's almost the sort of path of righteousness in as much as you just need to hire for what's in front of you rather than the grand plan? How do you think about that? I think you've summed it up there. You can get too much in the trenches and you spend too much time working in the business and not on the business. And there you look too short term at what's required. 
And we did under-recruit, and it's an issue that we've done for many years in the business, and we've only just got out of that cycle. And therefore, you find that when you make those recruitments, they're not good for even a full year as a fast-growing business, and then that starts to be a drag. So we really did recruit for the here and now, and it was a mistake. And people talk about it, you know, spend the right kind of money, but it is true. Mm. When you actually start upskilling and getting the people from that next level, it is amazing what they can bring to the business and how quickly that can accelerate and improve what you're doing. So we under-recruited, we underpaid, and we really didn't scope it out properly. And we were just too close in the trenches trying to survive. Yeah, you rarely hear of anyone that recruits people that were over-skilled for the role. It's so true. You don't know what you know until you meet the right people, until your eyes are actually woken up to the problem and what they can bring. Yeah. Or the problem gets to such a scale that you can afford that person. And yeah, exactly. You definitely make a sort of P&L driven hire because you've written an Excel model 12 months earlier and that was what he had in cell 63b or something yeah you can get tied to the other business plans but also private are very good when they go into businesses i mean you know it's your job but they really do understand what was required mm. and the script was very clear you know working with christian it was about professionalizing keeping the sales momentum and that international sales growth and securing that new innovation you know they're the three things we focus on but how we got there was never a straight line So you've been in the business for like 15 years or so. The bit that amazes me is like that period of 15 years of sustained growth, which would have been, I guess, at least double digit the whole way through. And a lot of people get bored. So maybe just talk me through the journey of how you've managed to execute day in, day out and sort of keep that momentum up. Yeah, I mean, 15 years. Thanks for reminding me of that guy. (laughs) Sorry. Made me feel really old now. It's a good question. I would start at the beginning, actually, and we talked about the air conditioning market, but it is a very exciting market because it has less barriers. I've worked before, as we talked about, in very exciting areas like roofing felt. We've got established competitors. You know, you really are fighting just a couple of margin points. Mm. Where with air conditioning, because of its global scale and the fast-growing nature of air conditioning and the demand for it growing, that it's turning as, as an industry really from something that was a luxury to necessity. So you do have a fundamental within that business that makes it exciting in itself because of the fat pace. And it's rather as Warren Buffett said, you know, always invest in a business that an idiot could run because one day he will. <laughs> and, you know, there is so many good headwinds on the air conditioning business that it's fun to be in, but it does give you growth just by playing the game. Mm. But within that, then, it's about solving that problem. I think that's what keeps most entrepreneurs awake at night, but also excited, you know, actually creating the business and moving it forward. So during that transition, if you break that 15 years into kind of like three chunks, the first one was Richard, it took seven to eight years to take it from that 13, 14 million to 30 million yeah, and move the EBITDA up from three to 10. Now that took seven to eight years of building the team, building the foundation, understanding what the issues were within that and getting something that we could actually then look towards exit. Now, obviously, in the middle of this, we also got the global credit crunch in 2008, 2009. So during the middle of this transitional when it was going really well for the first year and a half, we suddenly didn't get an order for three months, which was very exciting. You know, and you'll hear all these terrible things about PE, but inflection stuck with us, Christian stuck with us. They said it's not a problem, Mm. and we worked through that. But then by having that foundation in place, the wonderful thing about PE is you do get to exit the business. You do get to then re-incentivize and start again with the management team and bring more people on board as part of that journey. Yeah. And that part of the plan is when you actually start an exit, you actually do an MBA on your own business because you're getting all this due diligence, people asking you questions, very smart people. And our plan became more and more apparent that there was a great opportunity to go for a buy and build strategy for the next five to six years. Mm. So after doing the first exit, we then bought six companies 
within that five years and then extended the product range. So we weren't just pumps. We then went into tools. We went into chemicals. We built out Bigfoot, one of our little pet projects and accessory business. So we were truly global, but also with five key product sets and five strong brands. Mm. And that's something that really excites me. I love the product agenda. I love the acquisition and the buy and build, but also the integration of the management team. So for that five years, that was super exciting. And now we're on the next phase and we're back with inflection, which was a bit of a surprise to all of us. Gone full circle. But this phase now is about how we then really then master some of the new markets. What are we going to do in areas like Southeast Asia and new product areas? And how do we cement our leadership position in Europe and create our strategy of Fortress Europe? And it's just an unfinished problem that every morning you can get up and get enthused about. And you meet some very interesting people along the way. I think it's a mindset. So I think you need to be fundamentally curious because plenty of people would have gone, I've taken it from two or three million to 10 million profit, you know, made a lot of capital value and overachieved and already become sort of dominant in the global pump market. You could easily have wrapped it up at that point, if you sort of mean there's lots of businesses set out to trade or set out to a larger corporate buyer and you can extract the synergies and it kind of ends there. But there must be something in your character that is like perennially either unsatisfied, I don't mean that in a negative way, or just keen to learn. Yeah, I mean, you know me, so I work on high energy enthusiasm, but I have recruited the whole team around me and bought those businesses. So I've become part of the DNA and I've done that with individuals who back me and trust me. Yeah. And we also have within the operation, I'm very generous with the equity and that's one thing that private equity can do. So there's seven to 80 people in that business that are looking up to me as well. So I see great responsibility to take it forward as well, mm. that they've backed me and they're gonna back me again to move forward. So for me, it's an unsolved problem, but there's an opportunity to do it and build something. And I don't see myself as an entrepreneur. There are entrepreneurs who are actually shipbuilders who create the ship, but I'm actually more of a sailor. I take over businesses and sort out the problems and move them forward. Mm. But in Aspen, I do feel like the founder now because I've been there so long and I put my DNA over the business. Yeah. You know, I'm working with people I really love in a business, you know, in a market that we're helping to define. And how often do you get that opportunity in your career, really, to do such a thing? So as a project, it's really exciting, and market is. And there's a great set of people that we really do have a laugh along the way. So it basically gives you energy, effectively. It makes you more fulfilled as a human being working in a high-paced environment with people that A, are good, and B, you trust, and C, you feel some paternal responsibility for as well. Yeah, I think that really sums it up. And if you look at the COVID crisis, was a really good summary of that where, you know, we pulled up to the management team where really five of us were sitting there thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> but during that period of time, we've actually had a good COVID. We've managed to make two acquisitions. Wow. And all of that was done without seeing these businesses. All of that was done remotely. So it's been an incredible challenge there, but it just shows you how good that team is. Yeah, high level of trust. And let's be honest, Guy, I don't do any of the work. You know that. <laughs> I know that. I am the figurehead. Yeah, but ultimately, <laughs> good businesses are actual simple businesses. And the plan is reasonably obvious. But the bit that is the defining success factor is the execution of the plan and doing it in a compounding way, particularly a business like software and Aspen pumps that has that reoccurring level of revenue. But more often than not, over a sustained period of time, the execution and that day-to-day grind, it has a rich vein of form for for three or four years and it's very rare to see it compound over 15 years. So whilst you don't do the work, you are permanently working at the environment and ecosystem that allows that to exist. And I think that's that's the really, really hard bit because to some extent anyone can do sales. But I suspect your role's quite hard to replace 
on a long-term basis. But you picked a very important point in that. It is every three years, the words you use there, you have to change your business. Yeah. And every three years as you go through a stack change, you really need to look at it. And that brings energy itself. Mm. You know, you're talking about what is the role of a CEO in a business, in a fast-moving business. And the first thing, if I get any responsibility, first of all, how did I get it? Then I pass it straight away. So my management style is not delegation, it's more abdication. Yeah. But then it's giving that to people who can do something with it that does energise them. And it is all about energy management. You're completely right. You know, the role of the CEO is to motivate that team to get the culture right and spread the energy. If things are getting in the way of people to remove the barriers. Yeah. And this is one of the fundamental things that I find in businesses. When people are giving management responsibility, they suddenly start to change their behavior. Yeah. They suddenly think they can't have fun. They suddenly think they've got to start controlling and monitoring people. Yeah. And all the things that destroy people's energy is what they do. And we do a lot of training on frontline managers to make sure that what we really do is give them the tools to manage people without just being themselves and really supporting those people and moving away the managers and creating delivery cultures. Because when you first joined Aspen, I imagine you would have been what I call like out of the trenches leader, like blow the whistle and I'm first out of the trenches. When did you notice you went, actually, I'm not going to do that and I'm not going to be perfect at everything? I think that as we moved out that first age, eight years and we'd put that platform in place and there was a trust and there was a structure that we knew we could take the business on. Yeah. So after the first eight years, then it was really moving back and focusing more on the acquisition and the development of the wider team. Like did you go, actually, I remember I had a car crash meeting or I almost blew myself up because I overtraded or was it just a natural evolution well it's a natural evolution of putting people around you are better at their operational jobs that they're doing yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so if you build the team and they're yeah. better at it you know don't get in their way and having the common sense or the lack of ego to recognize it yeah and then secondly we talk about three-year cycle and it's not dissimilar to how we run our own business because we raise a fund every you know three or four years and effectively you have to by definition go and get your homework marked and that kind of forces you to revisit the business plan but how do you succeed you bring in people you trust and you like yeah. and they've done a good job but you must have a few times recognized that they're no longer fit for purpose for that role or so how do you go about that journey yeah they always say you know the role of a good manager is how many uh, awkward conversations they can have in a day yeah and there are situations where people aren't going to be on the bus moving forward and i think you have to recognize that and that's not saying that people are bad yeah it's just saying they've reached a certain level or they're just not right for that organization now after that you know the 2015 exit we had put the yet again the team in place within that and it was most of the core team was still there and are still there today, which is quite unusual. Mm. But they were able to stand up. But we have bolted out that team. So we've only really had, after that period, three or four casualties moving forward that just weren't able to make that. And unfortunately, you just have to face up to it. And people themselves know. They know if they're not performing. And it's cruel to actually keep them in the role and not have the conversation with them. Yeah. And people, especially at director level, are very sensible about this. They really do see it coming. Yeah. So I don't think you can actually hold off because that's cruelty themselves if they're underperforming and getting stressed. And I think you have to get involved very early. And when the decision is made, you need to talk to the individual. Because yet again, that's just not fair. So you talked about having the awkward conversations. So in one way, you're like anti-HR. Yeah. Like you've written a lovely article on our website about why you should get rid of the annual appraisal. Totally. But at the same time, you're deeply HR. So I understand you've done some... Aren't you qualified to read Mars-Briggs or something like that? So... Talk me through that. Well, as an individual, what I've found has worked for me is to really understand that person and spend time with them and understand them. And there are some very good tools out there that support you mm. within that. Mars-Briggs being a very simple tool, but something you can use that actually gives you an opportunity to talk to that individual. Because I'm sitting with you, and I hate appraisal systems, so we need to clear that up. You know, there's only kind of three rules in any business I run, 
And first of all, there's no appraisal system. Yeah. The second thing, there's no HR director, and that is for sure. And then the third thing, that there's no mission statement. Actually, there's no SWOT analysis, which I think are a total waste of time. But HR directors, you know, you're taking responsibility away from the individual to manage their staff and thinking there's a central department that does that, and that's wrong. All of my team manage their staff, are there to develop their staff, and they get appraised every week. You don't need to wait six months to sit in an office and find it's out the drawer being dusted off. And you're sitting in a conversation where someone's going to mark you, saying, should I give you a five or a four this year, Glenn? Have you been really good? You know, that is, I think, a completely waste of time, but also a conflicting situation. So from my point of view, mm. I have used tools like Myers-Briggs and also psychometric profiling, because you can talk to the individual without threatening them. Because if you're developing any of your staff, you can only talk about behaviour. You can't mention personality. That's theirs, that's personal. But if you have a personality profile, at least it gives you an opportunity to have something neutral to discuss. Mm. Uh, look at some of the drivers for the behaviour. Give them greater awareness. I don't think people can become great managers unless they have great self-awareness and you've started to align their Harari window. Mm. And that's what I try and do in, in my management style when I work with the team. And I think that really helps starting with them and getting a greater understanding of how their behaviour affects others, what drives that behaviour and how to align that to best performance. And do people have like individual goals? They get a goal every day in our business. Yeah. There's no shortage of goals. Everybody's clear on what they're doing. And we work on that cycle really where we try and drive for the business, you know, that motivation is based on challenge, reward and recognition. Yeah. And if you can get job design right all the way through the business so people can feel that there is a challenge they're involved in, that the reward is there. But first of all, most people, just the recognition that they've done their job and they've achieved it is essential. And that reward doesn't have to be money. Yeah. That could be a pack on the back. That could be taking out for a meal. Sometimes it is cash. But getting that cycle right is a virtuous cycle that creates motivation and energy around the team. Yeah. So that's what we try and do. But you've had appraisal systems, I'm sure, in your career, in the early career. What do they ever generate for you? Yeah, conflict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or angst. Yeah. Exactly. So why do we do it? So how do we wrap that up? So there's individual work I do with the team and development, but they're all well past that now and doing their roles. But we do a frontline manager course where we're putting the very fundamentals of this with an independent facilitator. Because those frontline managers are the people that are actually doing the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. So we build that in with self-awareness. We get them together as a team. We give them the principles of their personality and behaviour and Harari window and Myers-Briggs. And we find that really gives a step in performance. Mm. But the one thing that delivers that is they make time to talk to their staff. And that's the one driver that works and the ability to do that and have that conversation. Rather than being forced to feel a piece of paper in, stick it in a drawer and then think, oh shit, I've got to go back and look at that. What did I write? Are they a three or a four on their appearance or, yeah. or their attendance? Yeah. Just such a wasteful exercise. Actually, it starts to make a lot of sense when you look at the long-term growth of the firm, or certainly in your tenure, because you massively invest in the second tier or the third tier. Yeah, well, as we grew and as we've gone through the next phase, it was very clear, and it's something that I did when I was at Greenwood as well, that those frontline managers, the second or third tier, are essential for them to bulk out and take more responsibility, and that they needed to get the attention and the support from that. And... What we did is we worked with an independent facilitator, but not your normal kind of person, very people-centred, and put our own course together, which lasted a year. Mm. But it gave him an opportunity to expose to theory and then the opportunity to do products, but access to a lot of the directors. So every course was kicked off by a director, and he would talk for 15 minutes about his own view on businesses and his own view on life. They can have any subject. But it just brought them closer, but it also showed how human mm. the individuals and directors were in the business, and it just broke a barrier down. And we found, so strange enough, this week we sat on Monday and had lunch with the people who were on that course. And most of those people now have been promoted within the organisation. 
I think the bulk of them have moved on and really support the growth because we're about to run the next course for the next 20 people. And we found that's really where you've got to focus your efforts because they're the managers of your future. But also there's a lot more carrying they can do for the senior management and you've got to trust them, give them the tools and actually pass that responsibility backwards. And how do you develop yourself? Do you consciously seek personal development or how do you think about that? No, I don't think I do really as an individual, unfortunately. I don't really like business books. Mm. I don't really like networking. So I'm not someone who really pushes myself forward or looks at personal development or other businesses. I'm more obsessed by the problem than solving the problem. So what do I mean by that? You know, In certain markets, we still haven't sorted out the right kind of platform and the logistic model. So I'll look at the competition. I'll look at what other people are doing. I'll focus on that market. I'll talk to other managers. And then you learn a lot about how the market and how it functions, and that gives you personal development itself. And believe me, I get a lot of feedback from my staff mm. every day. It's a two-way process. So you know, <laughs> there's a lot of brutal feedback, which I take. And I'm married, so there's never an ending streak of feedback of personal development opportunities. We have two kids, there's even more feedback there. Yeah, always areas where you disappoint and can improve. Continually, yeah. It's like my school report. Yeah, exactly. Must try harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking back here, last sort of 15 years or so, what were the biggest bumps in the road that you think you had or challenges? Oh, we've had some classics. We got to the situation where we were trying to put a new planning system in at pace to try and move away from having this piece working, which was just not able to manage the stock. And it was one of those fundamental parts that we needed to change in the business to make it more like a machine. And the planning went wrong. We ran very close to running out of cash. And that is very scary in any environment, but it doesn't help in a PE environment. And we did have three or four months of really having to monitor the cash and get close to everything that we purchased and bought. And that really took about a year and a half to really fully recover from. So that was one of the scary ones. Obviously, we had the credit crunch to go through, you know, as we said, to not have an order for three months and to sit there and to really back yourself. And then recently COVID, you know, to go from a cycle where, you you know, I've never been in a position like this in all my management times where you're dealing with a pandemic. You really haven't got a rule book or a playbook you can go back to. Mm. So you are making it up as you go along. But the key thing there for us was to pull back and just focus on the staff and the staff health yeah. and not to worry too much about the business actually itself. And that was the first priority. So there were three big shocks that we went through within it. The rest has been just loads of bumps about the wrong people and the wrong recruitments. And we've never really lost major customers that had issues like that. You're on your third PE tenure, this time back with inflation. So you've gone through two transactions. So that's something that many people listening in won't have ever gone through. What would be your big learnings or memories of those transactions for somebody that would be embarking on it for the first time? You've got to really start the preparation from day one for the exit. Now, what that doesn't mean is you're trying to build a business that's based on exit. You've got to run your business properly for what's best for your business. Mm. But at the end of the day, if you take a normal three to five year cycle, someone's then going to be marking your homework because there'll be due diligence done across all of the business. So if you haven't put the right structures or if your acquisitions, if they're not done properly, if the legals aren't correct, it's going to give you problems on exit. So from day one, you've really got to make sure that you don't take any shortcuts in what you're doing and you're able to demonstrate through good accounts, through good due diligence, that the business itself is a reliable machine and be able to explain that. So I'd start there, it happens at day one. When you come to exit then, I always find them great fun and a very exciting progress because you get to talk about the work and what you've done and achieved and get to talk about yourself, which is my favourite subject. <laughs> so you get this great opportunity to talk to some really bright people, be challenged by the providers and due diligence and have some very interesting arguments or discussions. So as I say, it's like an MBA for people itself. But you know, if you've got a great business and you really are passionate about it, 
that's a great opportunity to demonstrate it and show it. But also you've got to make sure that you're supporting your staff and looking after them because ultimately they're looking towards you. You are negotiating the next deal for them, the opportunity for them, and obviously securing what they've invested in that business. So there's a lot of responsibility and choice that comes with that. And the one thing I would say, even with a PE environment, at the end of the day, the management team do have the choice in a good PE company. The PE company will back their decisions to get what they think is right for the team. So it's a very much a two-way process where you've got to get the right PE who will back you on that exit and make sure that you're doing best for everybody because you've got to run that business again as well. So it's not just about taking the highest price in the marketplace. It's about taking the right deal and the right partners in the PE environment. And when I talk to a lot of people going into it and referencing, because Aspen is well known as a business that went from a UK exporter to an international brand, you know, they're really the advice that we give them is focus on that and make sure you've got the deal structured, that there's enough within that to support your team and there's enough to share back within the equity and the opportunity that gives them to motivate people. But also recognition and reward, as we say. Giving people a little bit of equity has a massive improvement in performance. It really does work, and private equity can let you do that. What about choosing PE, say, price, effectively because we've got institutional shareholders and therefore, by definition, trying to price maximise. Deliverability is another sort of big word, but once those hygiene factors are taken care of, how do you personally choose a ignoring houses that may have been successful or unsuccessful? What do you look for beyond the hard stuff? Well, you're right, any good finance director, if you can write the PE model of where that should be in the valuation of the business, so then you can actually focus on what's important and finding the right partners to support your plan. And I think any CEO going into an exit process has got to find someone who buys into your plan and believes your plan and is aligned with that. Because the one thing you don't want is the PE to have their plan behind. Yeah. So you do have to spend a lot of time. It is a two-way process in what you're choosing and making sure that you're aligned and they've got the same energy for the business, the right kind of cultural fit which is very important in Aspen and the way that we operate and the speed that we operate with and that they're aligned themselves with the passion that you see and they want to be part of that journey with you. So it is unfortunately one of my specialist subjects of going out, drinking, eating a lot with them and spending time and referencing them and really finding there's someone that you want to spend the next five years with. And do you think it's about the individual or the firm? It's always a mixture of both, isn't it? You know in this market that private equity is about its bond and its word and that gets out if people haven't supported management teams and is easily referenced. So they have to walk the talk. But then ultimately with that done as a hygiene factor and energy, and I think what you guys have done, and I really mean it, is you do stand out in the way that you've kept that energy and around the brand and the enthusiasm, then it is about those people and it's about that culture that they will do the deal at the price they've said but most importantly there's someone who are going to back you and you can have good debates and they'll bring something to the party intellectually as well. Was it always inevitable that you'd go from basically through PE ownerships was that cause or effect either as management team or just industry structure? Yeah again an extremely good question because everything is based around you know ultimately there are these things called strategic buyers from the trade side who can pay a price that should blow the PE out of the water yeah and there were opportunities this time for two trade buyers to come and do that and inflection were very smart in the way that they aligned with the management they did a lot of work up front on the business plan and how it could go forward and were able then to execute very quickly to put a really compelling case to the management and also to our backers at that time that this deal could be done for what is a good price but at the same time it's down to the management if they want to go trade or not as we mentioned earlier a PE can't sell a business without a management team in place. Mm. And we were very keen to go again. We believed in Aspen, the Aspen Group and the story and what we were trying to do. And we really wanted to deliver the next stage of that strategy. So we were ourselves, you've got to play fair and down the middle, but we're very keen if it was possible to go with another PE deal.
And onto a bit of the world of PE generally rather than specifics, the good, the bad and the ugly of PE in your view? Well, I've done very well out of PE, so I really only have good experiences. It's never treated me that badly. I can only really name one individual who really has rubbed me up the wrong way and I thought the best way was to try and beat the management team up while trying to buy the business and get to a situation which was in conflict with us. Yeah. So I found PE to be, you know, an excellent model. It has independently, you know, created a lot of wealth for its backers and also the management team and has increased an environment where we can grow. And I think the one thing you get with PE, having come from a background where it was slow organisation, slow decision-making, it was fragmented away from the businesses. Coming from that corporate kind of sludge, it's a very dynamic, great environment to work with some really smart people who will challenge you. You know, and every month you will get that question from the investor. So I think it's a brilliant model and it's only worked well for me. They really have supported us. I think as the UKP industry has grown, the individuals around there really get that and how to work with management teams as well in the better houses. If you could create something or be given something from PE, what would that be? That's a really tough question to ask because so far it's always deliver the goods. I can't think of anything really because a management team is about running its own business. You know, your P there is not to grab the steering wheel. So there are certain levers in obviously cash or support or helping with the strategy. Mm. But it's all about implementation from the management team themselves and having that in your control. So I think from our point of view, there'd be very little I could really say that we need more than with P because we're just getting on and doing it and the business is delivering. And there's only so much bandwidth you have as a management team. Mm. And we've had, as we say, a very good pandemic so far so you know we are operating very well and doing some interesting products and acquisitions within that what about uh, you as an individual so beyond sort of aspen 3.0 a person that has goal sets or big life plans i think you can guess the answer to that (laughs) 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 unfortunately that is no you know it's all in the here and now and just enjoying what i'm doing yeah and i think that really helps and why i've stayed with aspen so long yeah i'm not someone to spend time in the past or in the future yeah you know it's more here now what you're doing and what's in front of you and you know PE does you know generate a certain amount of opportunity to enhance your personal wealth and experiences but that's not really been a big driver for me and the team I know you're not supposed to say that but what has been great is being able to share that equity with other staff members and do an improvement to their lifestyle so no, there's no major plans you know we've got to get Aspen to where it needs to be for the next exit so that people can realize those benefits and how we move forward and that's really what I'm focused on. Obviously a privilege to have you on the entrepreneurs panel and you're doing a brilliant job mentoring some of our teams so you must enjoy parts of that extracurricular work I suppose. Yeah well it's rather like the point that you said about how do you get personal development and sitting with the entrepreneurs who are entrepreneurs and really out there and have done some amazing things I just learn so much every day but also the mentoring that I've done with John Mm. I've just learned so much through talking to John you know he's a very talented guy and just spending time with those individuals I find creates my energy but you learn so much about business and I once was privileged to sit as an NED with a business that we work with Christian again This isn't the Christian PR show, it's just a fact of reality. I don't know, we can throw some dirt in as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We'll have some balance later about him, yeah. And we were sitting there on the board of a business called CPE, which had just a fantastic management team. And it was a privilege to spend two, three years as an NED with them. And I stole so many ideas. It was wonderful that we implemented within our business. So that really is something that I enjoy and it drives it forward. But also I do enjoy the mentoring, talking to people and where you can help develop people. Because I think we all get stuck along the way of what our behaviour should be or how we should operate in certain situations. Yeah. And normally I've found the best thing you can do is go back to just the guy who's at the pub or the rugby club and just be genuine yourself. And that really gets you the traction, the momentum that you're looking for personally. Yeah, authentic. Yeah. I'm going to ask you some quick-fire questions. Do you have a favourite book that you'd 
turn to or recommend to anyone? Uh, I'm going to cheat on this and go back to the early books that I read that influenced me. And I'd start with Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it's a book that is thrown around a lot. And I would say don't read the back chapters. They get a bit heavy. Yeah. But I think the early chapters of the awareness that builds on, on personal development and understanding more awareness about yourself is absolutely excellent. And then the second one I'm going to choose is A Total Dinosaur in Business, a Jack Welsh, which has gone out of favour, who turned around a GE and was one time known as Neutron Jack. Yeah. But within there are some very good disciplines around budgeting and how budgeting can lead to conflict in corporate organisations and destroy value. And also we said about people selection and how to do that. And I think those tips are as relevant today as they ever were. So they'd be the two books that I'd choose and would reference back. And when I do personal development with people, they're the two books that I ask them to read. That seven habits is quite consistently recommended. And the most inspiring person to you? Anyone that's had a big personal inspiration to your journey or mentor? Well, apart from obviously Christian himself. (laughs) Christian in charge of recruited me. And and Charles Thompson of Inflection has always been one of my gurus in life. Actually, this is going to be quite cheesy. What really has inspired me is during the COVID period, the Aspirin Group warehousing people, manufacturing people, have come in every day to keep the business going during COVID when the office staff went home. And in that atmosphere of fear and not knowing what's happening, they turned up and kept the business going. They've been totally inspirational. You know, you can't thank people enough for doing that. And they're people really who have inspired me by doing that day to day and keeping the business going. You effectively have had a professional management role day one on Aspen but as you've sort of taken it through three layers of private equity ownership and sort of increased your own economic ownership but actually put your heart and soul into business for 15 years you've got that sense of ownership which a founder entrepreneur would have so are there any sort of important qualities you think would help people define themselves as founders or entrepreneurs or give them the courage to make the first leap? Yeah and it's something as we said before I've never done myself so I'm not one to preach about it but the people who have seen have been great entrepreneurs are people who really do have a passion for the business and a real vision for where that can go but also the ability to deliver on it and when I do talk to people or get involved with their business plans they seem to get too obsessed with the product and never get out into the sales cycle so people who can really get the balance to make sure the product's fundamental the service is fundamental but until you sell it you've achieved nothing and until you get that balance right of getting it to market quickly and getting the sales cycle going you've got no product at all and essentially when you get paid is the only time you get success so within that element I would say while being effective there it's about that passion and then as we talked about it's about just being genuine with people you've got to build a lot of relationships with your employees your customers and your financial backers you've really just got to be genuine and really be good at just being yourself and being honest adrian thank you you've been an absolute legend it's been a fantastic pleasure thank you guys at first pass adrian can appear a bit of a contradiction on one hand he's a professional ceo who thinks like a founder He doesn't have long-term goals, but he's led a business for 15 years. He doesn't like HR, but he uses HR psychology tools. What's so impressive about Adrian is how he's used his mechanical mindset to scientifically understand the human dynamics of his teams. And then he's used that understanding to transform them into consistently high performers. He has to be damn good at this to maintain the performance that, whether he likes it or not, he's been primarily responsible for for the last 15 years. I suspect the magic lies in the personal energy that he receives from Dynamic Fund teams, which was first honed on the university rugby pitches, where initially a lack of skill met a lack of ambition and then led to outsized performances. This passion and energy has been consistently poured into Aspen for the last 15 years, and it's no wonder that he's morphed into its spiritual founder. 
If you enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. Bye for now.